on our series from this last fall where we talked about Acts 2.42. What was the early church devoted to? And uh, I want you to go on a journey with me. If you can close your eyes. Well, actually, don't close your eyes because I want to show you a picture. Um, Look at this picture and imagine you're walking through this city. You're walking through this city. Um, You are alone or maybe traveling with one other friend because you're looking for a house. You're looking for, not a house, you're looking for an apartment building that you've never been to before. You're walking through and you, you pass the Temple of Apollos and you pass the Temple of Octavia and you pass um, all the beautiful Greek statues and columns and roads. Uh, Corinth was a beautiful, beautiful city filled with all of the Greek gods. And you're walking through here and you're looking for an apartment building and you walk up this staircase into this apartment building um, and it's a very nice apartment building. And you hear the sound of laughter and, and, uh, and uh, you know, talking and people having conversations and um, you knock on the door and Chloe opens the door and she says, welcome, come on in. Uh, we're, just, uh, we're just getting started. You can, you can come on in and uh, we're going to get started in a second, but help yourself to some food. And you go in there and the place is just packed. There's little tiny rooms, lots of little tiny rooms. People are all over the place. And uh, someone stands up and says, welcome everybody. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper tonight. This is the meal that Jesus gave us. He wanted to give this to us to remind us that his grace is enough for us. And you each take communion and you pass it around. And then someone says, I'd like to read a a letter from Paul that he wrote to us just recently. I'd like to read a letter to you guys. And, uh, and they read this letter. And at the very beginning, it talks about just the, the beauty of the church, what God intended it to be, and how we are the church, gathered in this little tiny apartment building, all stuffed in the rooms, and uh, just reading this out. And some people are chatting in the back and other people are still eating. A lot of people aren't paying attention, but the people who are paying attention are hearing this beautiful vision for the church. And then Paul says these words that kind of hit home to you in a little different way. First Corinthians 1, verses 10 through 18. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you are baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. In Acts 2.42, it describes that the early disciples were devoted to four main things. They're devoted to the apostles' teaching. They read the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to fellowship. 
They're devoted to breaking bread, and they're devoted to prayer. And today we're going to talk about how they're devoted to fellowship. Last week, Matt painted a picture of the church, that the church is not essentially its buildings or its programs. The church is the people of God called out on mission. That is to say that a church does not necessarily have a mission so much as the mission of God has a church, that we are empowered by God for his sake to give our lives for the sake of others. That's what we were called out to do. That is the mission, to invite people back into God's family, literally back into God's family. And that's what the early church was all about. The early church did not have buildings. They did not have doctrines. They didn't even have a canon of scripture. They didn't have budgets. They didn't have tax breaks. All they had was their life lived out in community. That was their witness to the people around that there was something different going on. There was a kingdom that was breaking in. And the only way people could see that is when they lived together in unity. And so some people had apparently gone from Pentecost, had been scattered out throughout the Roman Empire, and people had gone with the gospel message into every corner from persecution, but also because people were on business trips or they wanted just to move or they wanted to intentionally spread the gospel. Most of the gospel was spread, and most of the churches were started not by professional church starters like Paul or Apollos or Cephas or whoever else. They were started by ordinary folks who had a crazy story of something that happened back in Jerusalem when they were in Pentecost. You'll never believe what happened. Tongues of fire came down. People started speaking in tongues, and I was baptized into the name of Jesus. And they went back to their communities, and they shared Jesus' hope. And these communities formed up that lived different lives together. That's what the early church was all about. And so in Corinth, they had, uh, Corinth was an amazingly diverse city, had a ton of wealth, and had a lot of idolatry. They worshiped a lot of Greek gods. And so this community was a very, it was the most diverse group of people that anyone had ever seen. In the midst of the city, when people were bickering back and forth, when you had Gentiles and Jews fighting against each other, slaves and masters, when you had uh, men and women, all these different factions in the church, they were all brought together in unity, and they endured one another. They endured their differences for the sake of unity because that was their sole witness to the community around them that Jesus was real, was their unity together. So you have a lot of different groups coming together. And yet Paul is saying, I've heard news from you guys. He's now not with them anymore. He says, I've heard news from you that something has changed. You're no longer living like you used to live. There are factions. There's divisions. There's disagreements. You guys are giving in to the same kind of partisan battles that, you've been, that the whole rest of the city is in. You guys are giving in to the same kind of arguments, same prejudices, You guys are not living the way you used to live in agreement with each other. And we get some clues throughout the letter of 1 Corinthians what's really going on. Not only do you have these factions of people, whether they're Jews or Gentile, ethnic groups, uh, men and women, uh, slave or free, you have those different divisions, but there's also kind of this cultural poison in the water that Paul refers to. Later in Corinthians, he quotes this phrase twice with quotations around it where he says, everything is permissible. You say. You say everything is permissible, meaning it's all okay. Do what you want. You know, live how you want to live. I'll live how I want to live. Everything is permissible. And he says, but not everything is beneficial. Everything's permissible, but not everything is beneficial, meaning 
Not everything is good for the community. Not everything is good for your witness, for your worship. It's not all good. It's not all permissible. So we need to, he's basically saying there's two different competing values. Either choose to prioritize your individual freedoms, your self-interest, your self-preservation, your self-will, your self-centeredness, yourself, or you prioritize the benefit of the community, the community, the unity of the people. And those two things are at odds with one another. I'm not sure if the iPad is going to be able to switch for me. Pete, could you go to that uh, next picture that I have up there? Yep, next one. There we go. Okay. Uh, The Dark Knight is arguably one of the best Batman movies ever made. (laughs) Arguably. The Dark Knight. um, Christian Bale, Heath Ledger. Heath Ledger plays the Joker who is um, off his hinges wreaking terror on Gotham City. And he has issued an uh, alert that he's going to do, commit some atrocious act of violence on all the people in the city. And so people flee to the ferry boats, but they don't know that he's actually rigged each ferry boat with explosives and given the detonators to those explosives to the other boat. If you guys remember this, it's kind of like a game theory dilemma. What happens when you give each other the detonator? And he says over the loudspeakers of the boats, If you guys don't detonate each other's boats, I'm going to detonate both boats at midnight. And so they, you have this rising tension in the boats of, are we going to kill the other people? The interesting thing is, one boat is filled with prisoners, and the other one is filled with civilians. So you have this divide, right? You have these divides. And they think, well, the prisoners, they had it coming to them. You know, they have it coming to them. Why don't we explode them first? And that would be better for society. And the prisoners think, we've already had our, served our time. You know, let's get the civilians. And they're arguing, no one has pressed the button yet. Until finally, someone starts to realize, wait, they haven't, they haven't done it to us yet. And this, there's a great spot where, um, can you go to the next picture? This guy is holding the detonator. And uh, a prisoner comes up to him and says, give me the detonator. This guy's huge. Give me the detonator. And he says, I'm going to do what you should have done 10 minutes ago. And he gives over the detonator to this prisoner. And I think everyone's just relieved that someone else is going to make the decision for him. And instead of pressing the button, he throws it out the window. And the other one decides not to do it either. The joker was counting on and eliciting the self-interest of each person. And it turns out he had no way of detonating the boats. The only real danger was their own self-interest, their desire for self-preservation. That was the only thing that was going to kill the other people. And I think we have to realize that that same tension is going on in us. As we live in our own society, that is plagued by self-interest over the desire to maintain and benefit the community, to keep our communities intact. And yet, individualism is destroying our witness. It's destroying our lives. Um, Hugh Halter says this. If you can go to... Uh, why don't you go two slides ahead, Pete, to the Hugh Halter quote. There we go. Individualism is a Western modernity bias that fights against anything that doesn't directly serve our individual interests. Does that sound somewhat familiar to you? We see that uh, social media was basically built as a self-interest machine, it helps us express our self-interest, but also forms us to be self-interested people. 
It's all about me and projecting my will on the world. And actually, outrage is, happens as a result of that. People are just outraged at everything because nothing fits my own self-interest. We see a growth in that. And in our politics, in our, in our democracy, and around the world, we're seeing self-interest play itself out. Our people are just butting heads, not able to compromise or agree to preserve and benefit the entire nation or the entire world we're stuck fighting against our own self-interests. And politics only works, especially democratic politics, only works when we're able to sacrifice our individual interests for the sake of the whole. And we see very little of that in our country, in our society. However, you would think and you would hope that the church would be a place where that did not, was not the case, where the church would be one place where we are not you know, after our own self-interests. And yet, Week after week on Sunday morning is the most segregated place you could look in our society. That the church is filled with self-interested people. We are self-interested people, and we are just as divided as anybody. Since the Protestant split, actually you can go back earlier to the split between the Eastern and Western churches, the Protestant split all the way through. Denominations keep splitting and splitting and splitting. Churches are splitting and splitting and splitting over all kinds of things. Right now, the LGBTQ issue is coming up in churches, and it's dividing denominations, it's dividing churches, um, and it's catastrophic how we are unable to preserve our unity because of our own self-interests and our inability to reconcile over these issues. Same thing with baptism, infant or believers. Can we hold those two things together? Oftentimes, the church will divide over these things, or if the church doesn't divide, people will say, I don't agree with that, so I'm going to slip out the back door. I'm going to leave and find another church that agrees with me. That is not the kind of unity that we're after as a church. That does not testify to the cross. That testifies my own self-interest. Music, interpretation of scripture, women in ministry. We, we simply leave churches because they're inconvenient. They're maybe too far down the road or they don't have a service at the right time for me. Um, if we're single or if we're married, we might find that, the, that we don't see the people that reflect our own stage of life. Or if we look different than other people, we might look and go, well, that, that church can't possibly be the fit for me. Some of us have left, recently left other churches to come to Victory Point, and we're so glad to have you here. However, if there's some other issue that's been unresolved in another church, I talk to some people on the phone sometimes who say, I'm so glad that, you know, I've started coming to Victory Point, and I say, what, what brought you here? And they say, I'm from another church. Well, why did you leave that church? And they'll say some issue. I said, were you able to talk about that through with the pastor or with the leadership? They say, no, I haven't really gotten around to it. I said, please, go back to your other church. Promote unity. Seek reconciliation. At least bring it up with them. There's some learning and some unity that has yet to happen. And that unity bears our witness out in the world to say we don't just leave each other because we disagree. We're not after people from other churches. In the same way, if there's something that's bothering you here, we would love... There's nothing on my mind, okay? I don't have like a beef with anybody right now. But if there's something bothering you, that's totally understandable. We're a community and we're messy and we're not perfect. If there's something going on that's bothering you, come talk to me or come talk to Matt or come talk to anybody Talk to one of the elders, because that's what we do together. 
We seek reconciliation. We're a community of the cross. And that means we lay down our self-interests. We self-sacrifice for each other and we figure it out. We don't, I don't have all the answers. You may not have all the answers, but you have a story to tell. And if you can't be honest about that, it's going to be really hard for you to plug in anywhere. So let's just start right here and right now. Can we agree to that? Yeah? Okay. Let's agree to that. I think part of this that's underneath the self-interest is a fear. It's fear that if I lay down my self-interest for someone else, if I refuse to prep this detonator, someone else is going to detonate my ship. If I, if I lay down my self-interest, then no one's going to take care of me. If I end up sacrificing for someone else, who's sacrificing for me? Jesus. Jesus is sacrificing for you. Jesus went to the cross. That's what the 1 Corinthians passage leads to. He says, the message of the cross is foolishness. Jesus, the one we follow, went to the cross not on his own self-interest, but out of interest for you and for me to take care of our needs, to reconcile us back to the Father, not because it got him anything, but because he loved us and he was willing to sacrifice himself for the unity of the church. That's the person we follow. So when we think, when we have that fear of what if someone else doesn't, doesn't uh, lay their life down for me, we can look to the cross and say, Jesus has already laid down his life for me. He's already given me everything. So I can give myself completely away to other people. And if we have that fear, it needs to be replaced with some faith. We were baptized into the cross. We were baptized into the resurrection. We were baptized into Jesus. And that means we are one family. We are united. Paul says, you weren't baptized in my name. I'm thankful you weren't baptized in my name. So you wouldn't have any confusion about this. You were baptized into Jesus. And that means we are all part of one family together, the church. And we promote unity because God unified us already. Those who have been baptized, those who have been welcomed into God's family, have already inherited a new identity And that's what defines us, a new identity that that seeks to serve first, that seeks to sacrifice our own self-interest for the sake of the whole church. You can go to the next slide. There's a quote um, that kind of illustrates some of this. You go to F.D. Maurice, yeah. As self-will and disobedience are obstacles to communion of people with their creator, so they are obstacles to communion with each other. The same thing that separates us from God is what separates us from people. And then you can go to the next one, Sedgwick. I hope it's in there. Here we go. I got it. Um, All right, my thing isn't working. Can you go to the one that says Christian faith? I'll just read it for you guys. Um, Christian faith is not, first of all, a matter of right belief. Through and through, Christian faith is a way of life. We have, been, we have inherited a totally new way of life. It's not necessarily, we're not defined by what we think about things. We're defined by how we act together. Okay, so when I'm hanging out with somebody who might disagree with me, I care much less, maybe you can identify to this, I care much less about what they think about things or what their opinions are. I care much more how they treat me. If I feel like I'm being treated with respect, even amidst disagreement, I can endure that. And that's what defines us, is our way of treating each other, 
our way of life. We've been baptized into a new identity. Something new is true of us. The, uh, go to the next slide, please. Um, Galatians 6, 2 says this, Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. That we are a community that cares for each other. And this speaks against the part of individualism that is so exhausting. I think many of us are tired of, of uh, going it alone in faith. We read scripture alone. We, uh, we go to church maybe alone. Um, we serve alone. And when we're alone, it's easy to get exhausted. But when we carry each other's burdens, we can go a lot farther together. And so that's another part of our witness, is that, witness, that walking this road together gives us endurance. And as we carry each other's burdens, the world is watching, and they can see that this community lives differently than each other. The early church shared um, all their possessions, and, and if they were poor among them, if they were needy among them, if someone lost their house or a uh, spouse died, the whole church would rally around them together to take care of each other's needs. In the Greek culture, they had clubs, they had associations, they had fraternities where people belonged to it. You had a membership fee that you paid, like an insurance program, and you all gathered together, you had these clubs, and if someone needed something, you pull out of the pot. But that was not voluntary, that was required. And so you had a selective group of people, it was not diverse, and the pot was really small. These people gave their entire lives to the church. They said, everything that I own. Remember Ananias and Sapphira who withheld a portion of their property that they sold? They get struck down and they die. That's because the early church was, was telling that story to say, this is what we do. We give all of ourselves to one another. We don't hold anything back. And so people would see that and say, how do I get in on that? They didn't have any professional evangelists. They didn't have any, like I said, they didn't have any paid staff or anybody, you know, you know, trying to work revival meetings or anything like that. All they had was their life lived out in community. And people saw that and said, I would like to be part of that. That's the kind of life that I want to live. Whatever your evangelism strategy, we've talked about evangelism strategies before, how to share your faith with a friend. Whatever the evangelism strategy, at the end of the day, it must be confirmed by a way of life that is true. It has to make sense. Someone has to go, well, I've heard that message, but I'm not sure if it's real. I'm not sure if what you're saying is, is just fantasy or if it's actual reality. So let me come and see what it's actually all about. And when they see that the church is living completely differently, it's confirmed. They say, I would like to be part of that family. At some point, the gospel has to be incarnational in order to be real. Um, Go to the Leslie Nubian quote. There we go. Since the gospel message does not come as a disembodied message, right? So Jesus is not just a spirit or an idea. Jesus is a person. Since the gospel does not come as a disembodied message, but as the message of a community which claims to live by it and which invites others to adhere to it, the community's life must be so ordered that it makes sense to those who are so invited. It has to make sense. Our life together must make sense to the gospel we claim to believe. Otherwise, it doesn't work. Otherwise, we're not really being the church. Otherwise, we failed to communicate our witness. Um, George Hunsberger has another quote. You can go to the next slide. 
The congregation is the hermeneutic of the gospel, the only lens through which people see and interpret what the gospel is about and how it may be embraced. We are the message that we bear into the world. Our life that we lived out together is what tells the world that something is different, that God's kingdom is breaking through. Go to the next slide. Jesus says it even better. You can go to the next slide. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, as I lay my life down for you, as I go to the cross for you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. God unifies us. He unifies us in baptism and creates us into a new family that acts differently for the sake of witness. God unifies us for the sake of witness. I saw this, just a small example of this this week. Our elders um, had a meeting earlier about, you know, uh, three weeks ago or so. We had a meeting where we were discerning, where is God leading us as a church? How are we being led forward? And we were talking about some heavy stuff. We are talking some big stuff. And each person in that room has a different personality, has, if, you've, if you know the apest, you know, apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, and teacher, each person has a different way that they approach leadership and the different way, different questions they're asking, different priorities they have. And as we discern, started discerning vision, each of us, I could tell, had a different idea of what ought to happen for our church. And when Matt said, what should we do in response? If this is what God is saying, how should we respond together? As a church, what's the, what's the first step we should take? And unanimously, everyone said we should pray. We should pray. Instead of jumping out and doing this or that, we need to pray. And what that says to me is we need to seek unity. We need to seek vision. We need to seek the face of Christ and seek his revelation. And so this last Wednesday, we gathered together at Dwight's house. Thank you, Dwight, for hosting us. And uh, we gathered not to strategize, not to make plans, not to argue, but to worship. We gathered to worship. And so Matt simply said, let's, let's reflect together and then let's worship and pray. And we literally spent an hour and a half just praying and worshiping. Unity was in the church that night between people who probably have different ideas of what ought to happen in the future, but who choose to set that aside and to choose to worship Jesus together and trust that God will meet them there in that place. Our unity is our witness. So, if you're a single person here this morning, you look around and you see a bunch of married people or married people with kids, you might feel out of place or like everyone else is married but me. Our unity is our witness. When we're able to, as married people, to identify and love people who are single, and when we're able to, as single people, identify and love people who are married, we promote unity, and our unity is our witness. If you have music preferences that are different than what we see on stage, and you choose to stay here because you want to promote unity, that unity is our witness. If you've got kids in here, and, or kids in your missional community, and you realize that the kids are kind of being a, a distraction in our missional community, but you choose to continue to welcome them and embrace them, even if it's you know, upending the way you do church together, you are promoting unity, and that unity is our witness. 
If you identify with the LGBTQ community and you know that Jesus loves you and yet you see around the church that you're experiencing condemnation, that's not right. And our unity is our witness together. If you have kids in your family who have been adopted, who are part of the foster system, when you love your kids, you are promoting unity. And that unity is your witness. People see that. If there's people in your life who, who are, are homeless or who are recipients of, of mission and you bring them into your household or you bring them into fellowship with you, people see that unity. And that unity is your witness. If you're part of a marriage and that marriage is getting really hard and you choose to stick through it and work it out together rather than leaving, that unity is your witness. It's a witness to love that's greater than any of us could imagine. If you have a friend who's hurt you, who's disappointed you, and you choose to talk to that friend and make things right, your unity with that friend is your witness. If you're busy and tired and you want to stay in, but you choose to go to missional community or you choose to come to church or you choose to have people into your home, you are promoting unity and that unity is our witness as a church. So my encouragement today for us is that we should be united. Let's be united together. Let's love each other. Let's listen to each other. Let's sacrifice for each other. Let's care for each other. Let's show up for each other. Let's talk it out. Let's compromise. Let's bless each other. Let's heal each other. Let's agree together. Let's pray for each other. Let's feed each other. Because our unity is our witness. I'm going to invite the band forward. We're going to finish by worshiping with a song that talks about our witness together. But before we do, let me invite you to take some moments in silence to reflect on two questions that we often ask here. What's God saying to you today? There's lots of things I have said, but what's God saying to you? And secondly, what will you do in response? What's one small action you could take? Maybe there's somebody who, could, who would love to have a text from you or a phone call or have coffee with you. Maybe there's somebody to invite over. What's one small thing that you could do to do in response? Let's just take a moment to reflect together.
before we return to worship, I want to encourage you to turn to your neighbor and I want you to say something to them. There's a couple of things I want you to say to them. So I want you to repeat after me as you turn to your neighbor. Jesus loves you. So although we are different, I choose to set aside my self-interest to do what's best for us. Let's worship.